Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. And he swings! Tuesday, February 21st, it's the call-up, your go-to podcast on the future stars of Major League Baseball. As always, I'm Aram Layton, and he's Jack McMullen. Hope you had a great long weekend here. Uh, Jack, I know you're getting back. Are you still on the West Coast? You're still on the West Coast. I'm still on the West Coast. I'm still still here until Friday, man. Yeah. How's that been? Longer nights? You get to stay up a little bit later? Uh, Have you been doing any... uh, stat diving like I usually like to do at two in the morning. I got to take advantage of this and start sending you more late night, like random. I love Elijah Dunham swing at like 1 a.m. now that you're on West Coast time. Yes, you should definitely be doing that. Um, My brother wanted to dive down an interesting YouTube rabbit hole last night. So um, that's what we did until like always um, dangerous. Those are always really dangerous. But like I was just sitting there like kind of on Twitter, kind of watching whatever he was watching on YouTube and you know, all of a sudden it's 1030 Pacific. So here I am just tired as hell because I'm coming from East yeah. Coast. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it, that was tough. But you know what? We're fine. And yeah. the walk outside right now, it's so worth it, dude. Like I envy these guys that get to Arizona and Florida for the next six weeks. Oh, this is the time to be there and in, in spring training right now. Like I'm I'm dying in New York, dude, like. I know you're not out there covering baseball. You're seeing your brother, but beyond just the excitement, I have to go see these guys on the backfields, which we're going to talk about some clips that you saw before we cut to a really fun conversation with new Royals broadcaster, Jake Eisenberg. But this guy has seen basically every part of the Royals core offensively and pitching wise, obviously much, much more offense. And we talk about that with Jake go through Omaha where he was the triple a broadcaster there. But you know, this guy's bounced all around the minor leagues and, and done the journey really fun conversation, which we'll tease in a minute. But Jack, I mean, this is something that I think is one of the most underrated times of the year because it's it's a horrible time of the year, February sports wise. But I just watched Sports Center last night and it was the same three revolving highlights of Judge said he might hit 62 again. And then, you know, you, you had women's college basketball, men's college basketball, and then run it back again. Like that's that was the three, the three stories that they kept doing. But yeah. I'm really excited for this podcast because. You know, you and I are going to get out there to the backfields where we're going to get out there and, you know, try to see as many as many guys as we can. And this is the time where you can really get that intel going into the season. Yeah, it's when their guards down, which is nice. And like 
I'm not saying that their guard needs to be up, but it's it's a relaxed environment for these guys when on March 30th on opening day at the major league level and then 31 for the AAA level and and so on. It's all systems go for them. And yes, you can have a good conversation with them, but they're not going to have their shoulders tensed up right now like they will be at the end of March, right? Because then it's every number that I put up matters. Every bat at bat I feel that hurts the K rate, that hurts the WRC plus. It, It does everything there. Spring training is a time to just get into game shape and like see a bunch of pitches. And it's a very low stress thing. It's very high stress for guys that are trying to make teams, but we're talking to a lot of guys that I think know where they're going to be at the end of March, beginning of April. And and that's really fun. And and I can't wait for that. And, and just checking in with some guys right now in in Florida and in Arizona that you feel like they're getting off to a good start. And we're seeing a little bit of the simulated ABs. We got videos of what we get from, you know, whatever uh, reporters are out there. And again, I'm going to be pumping out some video out there. Uh, I had some, maybe my highlight of last year, I just dug up and, and put back up on my Twitter recently was Yuri Perez uh, in March of last year, just dicing dudes up. And that was like my, my firsthand account there watching his stuff. I said, all right, yep, this guy's going to be a top three pitching prospect in baseball by the end of the year. And sure enough, he was, but there was another side of it where it was like, I'm watching Paul McIntosh and, and you might not know who he is. If you're a listener, that doesn't go some follow the Marlin system closely. Hey, uh, Alex Ferrer does. Yeah. Oh, I know. Alex Ferrer loves Paul McIntosh. Uh, but but Paul McIntosh was an undrafted guy, 2020 short and draft. But I'm watching him battle against Max Meyer and like spoil unbelievable sliders and turn around a, a 95 mile an hour fastball. Paul McIntosh was nowhere near my radar at that point. The reason why I'm bringing him up is I watch that. I'm like, wow. I start following him for another week or two. And he's at bats against big leaguers, against guys like Jeff Brigham or whatever. Same competitive at bats. What does he do? He goes and puts an 800 OPS up in double A. And now McIntosh looks like one of the Marlins better offensive prospects. So I'm excited to, to be able to kind of go dig around. It's Mets, it's Astros, it's Marlins. It's it's uh, a few other teams, Nationals, that we'll be able to kind of go see. Cardinals, of course, out there as well. Uh, but there was one thing, one video I know that stood out to you before we cut to this interview that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, it was the batting champ in the American League, Luis Arise, on the heels of a video. And it was Daniel Alvarez Montez who, who put it out. I mean, the king, dude, like his his coverage, especially of, you know, the the Latin ball players, and like obviously the Marlins, he's a Marlins guy, but he is as in tune with Latin baseball as oh, yeah. anybody. And that is, I think, the most exciting game in the world, right? Like baseball in Latin America, baseball in, you know, upper South America, Venezuela, Colombia, those types of things. Like it's so, so, so much fun. And he's so in tune with that. So naturally he's going to pick that up. And if it's Marlins and if it's Latin guys, that he's all over it. He had a video of Luisa rise ripping what looked like a double down the right field line against Johnny Cueto, like so hard. Crushed. And it was the most like, compact beautiful mechanically sound swing you can find like arise is i remember some mlb.com article um was trying to say like we've got a 60 game season in 2020 who's the one that can hit 400 and be the first guy since ted william and and they settled on a 23 year old louise arise to, to be <laughs> that guy so like that tells you what kind of bat to ball and hitter louise arise is and and he made mincemeat of cueto then he sees Yuri Perez. 
And it was fastball that Arise was on his heels and just got a piece and fouled it back. Then it was slider that he was like lunging at that he fouled back again. And then I think it was another fastball that Arise lunged at and just popped up to third. Like I, I sent that to you and a couple other guys. And I said, this, this is just a crazy sequence. And, and you understandably so played a little devil's advocate and were like, yes, but like these live at bats, they skew so much in favor of the arms because the arms, like you don't have to see live hitting. Like no. a bullpen is a bullpen, regardless of if a hitter's in or not with hitters. Like this is their first time seeing live pitching probably, or like, you know, you can count on one hand the amount of times that they've seen live pitching before this. But I, I then played devil's advocate to your devil's advocate. And I said, regardless making that guy look yeah. that uncomfortable is such a feat a hundred percent and it i think it's a little taste of just how special and unique he is right because i mean you had the 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 preceding swing where he cranks one off of johnny cueto so shows you that he was at least some level of dialed in uh but even if it is advantage pitcher we're talking about a, a 20 year old 19 20 year old double a kid uh that is dicing up the the batting champion so even even in a small sample, even in a, uh, you know, shaking off the rust type of environment. It's a testament to it. The fact that I think, you know, I don't see where he plugs in immediately, but a reason why I think Yuri Perez could be big league ready by mid season. And we're going to do some more coverage on that in terms of prospects that we think, you know, won't make it out of camp, but we think will make it to the big leagues this year. And that'll be an episode that we'll do in the coming weeks. But um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see which, you know, we could see, the three top pitching prospects in baseball, which I don't think it's debatable, Grayson Rodriguez, Andy Painter, and Yuri Perez all debut this year. Which, especially now with the Spino hurt, it's not debatable. Yeah, especially, unfortunately, and that's another thing we'll talk about on another episode. But, you know, I think it's not debatable, especially with the Spino hurt. Like, those three are the best, and we might see them all at the big league level. We probably should see them all at the big league level at some point this year, with Painter and, and Grayson probably leading the way. But we have an awesome conversation with Jake Eisenberg, which is his journey is amazing. You know, to climb his way through the minor leagues, similar a journey that you're very familiar with. And I think you are close to following in his footsteps. You won't say it yourself, but I, I, I know that big league job is coming around the corner. But it was really awesome to just hear, you know, his journey, which we start with for the first 10, 15 minutes. Um, you know what it takes from a, from a broadcaster's perspective, just his experience through the minor leagues being, you know, going from high A, you know, low A, double A, every single stop all over the country um, to now be the, the big league broadcaster on the radio side for the Royals. But even more so, and of course, this was more the most interesting part to me is a guy that knows the game in Jake to be able to, you know, kind of conceptualize and, and add context to a lot of these guys' experiences because the Royals are a really interesting core here, right? This is guys that you've had emergent dudes like Vinny Pascantino. You've had disappointing guys like Nick Prado who are longtime top 100 prospects. You had guys that were traded for like Drew Waters. You had guys like MJ Melendez who you know quickly broke out and made that leap up to the big league level who, and then he didn't see him anymore because he was never coming back. Uh, you got struggling arms like Jackson Coar and a guy like Brady Singer who – came back down to triple a to get, you know, recalibrated and then didn't look back at the big league level either. And, and Jake's able to really add context to all of this from the human standpoint, from the, I watched every pitch and every at bat standpoint. And that was the really fun part of the back half of the conversation we had with him. 
my favorite part about interacting with guys like this, first of all, I really like Jake. Like yes. I, he's a genuinely good dude. Um, and he is as detail oriented an announcer as you will come across. Like he is, um, it, it's, it's so fun to like run tapes for me by him. Mm-hmm. Um, because I will, you know, I'll get the critiques that like I think about myself and, you know, sometimes you, you send that stuff out and it's like, Hey, you're doing great. Keep it up. Obviously we're looking for, for ways to get a lot better. And, and he has attacked pretty much every way that he can get better. And that's resulted in a major league job before he turns 30. So this is a, a very meticulous, hard worker. His attention to detail is crazy. And he fills in the gaps that I think we struggle to fill in at times. Um, I can fill him in about guys that I saw at, at high a with San Diego in 2021, I can fill it in about guys that, you know, I met in Indianapolis last year. I I will fill it in about pirates prospects. And my favorite part of being an announcer of being a play-by-play guy in minor league baseball is we've got fan graphs. We've got any database that you need to go get numbers here. What is the guy like? Because that is something that you factor in. And that's why you make such a concerted effort to go meet as many guys as possible. Um, I think that he does a really good job of giving us the makeup rundown of a Bobby Witt, of an MJ Melendez, of a Vinny, of a Nick Prado, and a Brady Singer and a Jackson Coar. Drew Waters after the trade, a cool conversation we had there because he saw a 300 point bump in his OPS after the deal. Like, how did that happen? And, you know, again, it's it's more than just, oh, he switched teams and, and hit better, switched organizations and hit better. It was like there were details that Jake was able to provide to us that kind of helped Drew. You know, in that change of scenery and, and helped light a fire under him. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. I think that's something that that listeners will enjoy, especially Royals fans. And uh, without further delay, let's kick to the interview with Jake Eisenberg of the Royals. All right, we got Jake Eisenberg, one of the newest voices, well, the newest voice of the Kansas City Royals, one of the newest voices in Major League Baseball on a full-time basis right now. Your rookie eligibility is already gone, right? Because you spent how many games with the Mets last year on their radio team? <laughs> yeah, so it was, a, it was a little over 40 games uh, filling in for the Mets. So I think uh, I don't think I'm eligible for any rookie of the year broadcaster stuff, but that that's okay. That's okay. So yeah, you're in your first year as the radio voice or one of the radio voices of the Kansas City Royals. Previously spent time with the Chatham Anglers in the Cape, um, the Brooklyn Cyclones, the Winston-Salem Dash, uh, Richmond, right? The Richmond Flying Squirrels, San Francisco's AA, uh, Omaha for two years, and then he got the bump to AAA to Major League Baseball. Uh, Jake... First and foremost, how excited are you? And like, I almost want you to compare the two phone calls or emails that you got between the Mets, where you knew you were doing 40 games and hey, I'm a major league radio announcer with the Kansas City Royals. Well, first, the fact that you just went through those little steps off the top of your head, that that was kind of impressive. You've, you've done some homework there, Jack. No, man, it's all about minor league ball. <laughs> Everybody knows the steps of the ladder. Yeah. Uh so I got the phone call from the Mets. It was like a week before the minor league season started. Uh, and technically speaking, it was, wasn't from the Mets. It was from WCBS. And I was sitting in the broadcast booth in Omaha when I got the call. And everything was like, oh, this is really happening. And I remember I remember talking to, his name is Tim Sheldon. I remember talking to Tim. 
And, you know, after we, after he told me the news, I mean, you're speechless, even though you're not supposed to be, because like what we do is words, uh, but you don't really have the words. So yeah, it's speechless. And you just kind of sit there and take it all in. And then I'm thinking, Tim, are you really calling me and telling me this news on April 1st? Uh, (laughs) uh, Like real, like really, like this is the day, like we're not messing around here. This isn't some like elaborate April fool's prank. So I'll always remember that it was that day because it was, it was April fool's day. Um, so that call was, was incredible. And at the time it wasn't really clear how many games it would be. Like I had a ballpark number, but it kind of depended on how the schedule worked out and, um, what the team was doing and where they were going and some other factors within there, but it wound up being 41 games. And thankfully four of those 41 wound up being at city field when originally it was only going to be road games. So it was really, it was an incredible experience. I mean, look, that's the team that I grew up rooting for. I grew up going to games at Shea stadium. Uh, I was heartbroken in 2006 when, Beltron took strike three called and with the bases loaded. And I mean, that was, you know, one of the most devastating moments of my childhood. I was at the 2015 World Series at games three and four. Uh, didn't go the way that I wanted it to then. Now, you know, people around Kaufman's Stadium are like, hey, check out, check out this ring. Uh, and they try and rub it in my, you know, childhood Mets fan face a little bit. And that's right. and that's okay. Like we're all baseball fans. We all come from from somewhere within the game of baseball. Um, so yeah, that was a pretty surreal experience, you know, getting to learn how to call a major league baseball game and especially to do it with with that franchise. But then, yep. you know, to call a couple of games with the Royals in May to to fill in for them in May and see all of these people that I've grown to know and love over the last couple of years. And then for you know, these conversations to start to progress as, you know, we got into the off season and, and things, you know, started percolating and happening. And for this opportunity to come with this franchise uh, at this time could not be more perfect. And it was the sort of thing where it, it's, you try and pinch yourself because it's not supposed to happen like this. It's not supposed to be this seamless. It's not supposed to be this timely or this perfect, but the fact that it has been this seamless makes all of it so much easier and everyone has been so welcoming and kind from from the front office people to fellow broadcasters to uh people in creative development and ticket sales and of course the players and coaches uh it's really just one awesome family atmosphere that uh that's really exciting to be a part of what one thing that you specifically hit on there that i'm excited to unpack and I know it's it's a big thing that Jack and I were talking about before we started recording is uh, the timing at which you are you know kind of joining the big league side of this Royals franchise which has such a fun offensive core uh, that you got to see up close and personal over the last couple of years in AAA and uh, the other thing that I'm really excited to just kind of talk about is is your journey because you, you talk about the, how it was seamless and whatever but at the same time it, you worked your butt off and bounced around to a lot of different places. And I think a lot of people don't realize, while it is slightly different in terms of what the craft is, the journey for a minor league broadcaster is, is just as grueling as it is for the players. And you got to climb the, the ranks, right? And I mean, no broadcaster is going to say that. But, you know, ultimately, the way I look at it, the way I've seen some of my former classmates or talking to people like yourself, hearing your everybody's journey to, to where they eventually get, it is very similar to what the players have to endure in terms of travel, in terms of living situation, in terms of just the the day-to-day grind that comes with it. So, you know, how does it feel to be able to now kind of get to the point where the last couple of years you got to see those minor leaguers, those really talented guys like Vinny Pascantino, like Bobby Witt, uh, like MJ Melendez, 
work hard and reap the rewards. And, and it's a little easier in baseball in the respect that like when, once you show the numbers, you can control your destiny broadcasting. Sometimes it, it, it's a little bit of being in the right place at the right time and just grinding and, and grinding it all out. But how does it feel to be able to kind of follow those guys and do the same thing that, that they kind of did, which was work hard, be great and hone your craft and now get to the pinnacle, which is the big leagues for the Kansas city Royals. Yeah. I mean, it feels, it feels amazing. I mean, it, it's, again, it could not have worked out any more perfectly. And I mean, case in point, the, the two games that I filled in for the Royals were in early May last year, that the first Royals game that I did was MJ Melendez's major league debut and awesome. Bobby Wade Jr. hit his first major league home run that night. And so somehow, some way, serendipitously, I got to be a part of both of those massive moments, frankly, in franchise history, and especially for those two guys in their careers, and being able to share those moments with them in, in that very small way, and go down to the clubhouse afterwards and congratulate them both in person. You know, as as minor league broadcasters, we see players get called up and make their debuts all the time, and it's an incredibly rewarding experience. You take a lot of pride in seeing a player, you know, rise through the system and graduate in that respect, but you never actually see see them play on the big league field in person. You just watch it on TV or listen on the radio like everybody else. So to even be there to see that happen in person was really cool. But to be there and see it in person and to broadcast it in that way and then share it with them afterwards, I mean, that's icing on the cake. And now we get to do that, you know, for, for 162. I mean, the, the beauty of this is these are guys that, you know, just a couple of years ago were getting called up and coming to Warner Park and then, hey, we're on a bus to Des Moines or, hey, we're taking a flight to Indianapolis. Uh, we're staying at this hotel in St. Paul. And we did that all together. We have those shared experiences and now we can have similar shared experiences at the big league level and kind of all figure it out in, in some ways together. I mean, for all of us, with the exception of Bobby, this is all of our first full major league seasons. And and don't get me wrong. I mean, these guys have been there more consistently and a lot longer than I have, but this is still the first time that we're all going to go from start to finish uh, at the major league level. So the fact that we can do that together and share those experiences together, I think is a really unique thing that frankly just doesn't exist in, in baseball really ever, but does exist here. And as far as the journey is concerned, I mean, yeah, it's, there's so much timing involved. There's so much luck. Uh, a lot of it, you know, can be can come down to networking at times and, and you build your network and you have certain people that you lean on and trust and ask for advice along the way and people that you reach out to and give you advice on your tapes and things like that and maybe point you in a certain direction. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it, the luckiest thing was the fact that the winter meetings were in Washington, D.C., my senior year of college. So going to the University of Maryland, I got out of the winter meetings and lo and behold, there was a job with the Brooklyn Cyclones that was posted there that I was lucky enough to, to get the number two job with the Cyclones. And then, you know, you kind of build some contacts and you throw, you know, you cast a wide net coming into 2018. And lo and behold, there's a number two position open with the Winston-Salem Dash that I've heard amazing things about. I've heard amazing things about Brian Bush, who was the previous number one there. And great things about Joe Weil, who wound up hiring me. He was the number one there. And, you know, then you're in the Carolina League with all these amazing people, some of whom are still some of my very closest friends. Scott Kornberg, who's now the lead broadcaster in Jacksonville, awesome. who's in the Carolina yep. League that year. Uh, Zach awesome. Bigley, who is his number two broadcaster in Myrtle Beach, is now the lead broadcaster in Frisco. Zach and I were roommates for an offseason. And one of one of my best friends and Dom Catronio was in uh, down east that season. Uh, he's now doing a bunch of stuff with the Brewers and WMTJ and up there in Milwaukee. So, um, you know, you, you start to meet all these people. And from there, you know, it's another number two job with the Richmond Flying Squirrels, which was just an incredibly rewarding experience learning from Trey Wilson, who's genuinely one of the best in 
in this industry at what he does. Uh, yeah. So learning things from him left and right on and off the air and then taking that and finding an opportunity with Omaha that, you know, kind of just sort of happened in the way that some things sort of happened and, and getting incredibly lucky. I mean, I got a phone call out of the blue. Uh, after, you know, sending a couple of emails to the people in Omaha, uh, I was in a parking garage in Charlotte and got a phone call out of the blue from them. Uh, basically, it was an interview. It was a conversation. And then it led to a job offer uh, kind of again out of the blue. And so here we are in Omaha. And then um, obviously, you know, 2020 rolls around and there's no minor league season. So we kind of figure out what we're doing there. Um, we launch a podcast with the Storm Chasers to keep, you know, to keep things happening in the baseball world. And then we get here in 2021 and it's great 2022 whirlwind with the stuff between the storm chasers and the Mets. And the fact that both entities were flexible with the situations to let me bounce around back and forth. Uh, that was kind of wild with all the travel and stuff, but yeah, I mean, as far as the journey goes, it's, it's just about getting a little bit better each yeah. day and also being proactive in listening back to the stuff that you've done and critiquing it and leaning on the people that, can help make you better listening to them, reaching out to them, um, you know, and, and just trying to be trying to be a good person uh, every step of the way, too. I mean, I think so much of this is just about being the best person you can be to the people that are around you because you're around them every single day. Uh, and so it kind of all folds into this one giant mesh of you. And I've been lucky enough to be to, I've been lucky enough to learn under a lot of people that have helped me and taught me and lucky enough to progress to a next step where I've learned even more and gotten, you know, just that little bit better. Uh, and lucky enough that at this, this highest level, there are people that believe in me and and trust me to do this job at, at the highest level that I possibly can. A couple of things that I want to hit on there. Cause obviously, you know, Jake and I are walking very similar paths and, you know, Jake walked it several years before me and obviously he's reached the level that, you know, I, I hope to get to it at some point soon, but like the, the good person point that Jake just made is really important because some of the best advice that I've ever gotten was my freshman year of college. I was like back home and I was at Georgetown DePaul and I ran into a Syracuse alum that was calling the game. And the, the main thing that I took away from that was, and Jake, we do curse on this podcast occasionally. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to curse. Um, he said, a lot of people can do this at a really high level. Are you a dick or are you not a dick? Yeah. And I decided that I, I was going to try my hardest not to be a dick. And sometimes, you know, I, I may be whatever, but I'm never going to be that person, you know, intentionally. And like, that was something that I took away from that because you want to be in a positive work environment at all times. And, and the other thing that jumps out, you were in Charlotte when you got that call about Omaha. Yeah. In, in the minor league broadcasting world, most of the time you have no idea what you're doing until like two months out, like <laughs> no clue. It's like, yeah. okay, I hope to be calling games. We'll see where that's at. Yeah. Um, the cycle's usually, weird. Yeah. The cycle's really weird. And usually you have a safety net, um, but like, I didn't find out I was going to be in Indianapolis last year until like March one. And even then, like, I didn't know, you know, what I was doing, like what the, what the structure of the pregame show was until I rolled into the broadcast booth on opening day. Like you sometimes have no idea, but what's, what's really cool about Jake. And then we'll get right into the players that he's kind of come up with, by the way, you say you're going through it all together. You are uh, doing a lot less physical exertion than they are. Might I point that out? Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but like, I, look, I still have to be in the best shape of my life next week. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I, getting the call from AAA to the bigs in the same organization, obviously that's what happens for players. 
that's very rare for broadcasters, right? Usually you bounce around organization to organization. Making the move from triple to the bigs, that had to be so, I don't know, almost comfortable for you. Like, obviously, these are uncharted waters. This is going to be an uncomfortable situation, which is what we strive for. We want uncomfortable situations because it's, you know, the biggest audience that we've ever talked to, those types of things. But you have to feel comfortable knowing that these are the guys that you saw on that sleeper bus and you stayed at the Fairfield Inn with. And now all of a sudden you're at the four seasons with them. Yeah. I mean, so I'll say a couple of things on that. For starters, yeah, it's a great point that this is not the broadcaster path through minor league baseball is not linear. Uh, I mean, I worked for the Cyclones. That's a Mets organization. The Winston-Salem Dash, that's the White Sox. Richmond Flying Squirrels, that was the Giants affiliate. And the Omaha Storm Chasers, that's a Royals affiliate. That's four different major league uh, affiliations. Uh, over the course of my my minor league tenure. Uh, so it's not a linear path. Like you're not going from, you know, single A, high A, double A, what, what have you. It doesn't work like that. It just so happens that within those jumps, I kind of, you know, did that in a linear way, but that's not always the case. And truth be told, not every triple A team or double A team is created equal. There are some high A franchises that function at an incredibly high level and provide an amazing opportunity. And so it, it's it's become a little bit more about, context than it has about sheer level where i think it used to be a little bit more cut and dry of oh triple a broadcasters are the best in minor league baseball and single a broadcasters are just getting started that's not how it works anymore there's an incredible amount of talent at every single level and that kind of dovetails back to what we were talking about but like being just like a good dude or, or trying your best to be a good dude because there are people that are incredibly talented that frankly could call major league baseball yesterday and for whatever reason, haven't necessarily gotten that chance. And there are some people that understand that and can be bitter about that. And that bleeds into how they carry themselves throughout the day. Uh, yeah. Or just in general, there are people that, you know, sometimes are not super pleasant to be around. And uh, I think you just want to be a person that people enjoy being around, whether it's talking to players or talking to front office people or talking to fans or what what have you. I mean, ultimately, we are entertainers and nobody wants to be entertained by somebody that they find distasteful in any way. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like such a simple thing. Just be a good person. But, you know, through the grind of a, of a long minor league season or multiple minor league seasons or a long major league season. Uh, yeah, everyone's got bad days. Um, and at least for me, like when I'm having a bad day, because bad days do happen. I really just try and keep the perspective of like, whoa, I'm at a ballpark calling a baseball game, sharing it with you and the fact that we get to do this here and now is incredibly lucky and fortunate. And on the really, really bad days, I keep that perspective. And I also have ice cream in a helmet cup. Uh, yeah. And it, it transports me back to when I was a kid at Chase Stadium, getting ice cream in a helmet cup in like the sixth or seventh inning. And that's, you know, one of the links to my childhood baseball fandom. And it just it just reignites that spark mm -hmm. instantaneously. Like, whoa, this is this is the thing that we're doing. And there's nowhere else that I'd rather be right now. So, yeah, all of those things. They, they dovetail together uh, and it's kind of hard to separate them. You know, it's not, it can't, it can't be just, Oh, this person's really good at calling baseball. Uh, if it were that, that'd be fine too. It's not, you know, we're, yeah. we're human beings. There's a lot more to human beings than just the things that we're capable of doing professionally. Uh, yeah. There's a, there's a massive totality of who we are that goes into the things that we do. So 
transitioning to to the some of the players that you saw uh you know over the last couple of years and specifically last year because you just mentioned kind of finding that spark again and and that kind of led me right to Brady Singer right because you get to see this guy who's first round pick you know Wong at UF was University of Florida was expected to be, you know, maybe the one one, you know, at least a top 10 pick. And then he has slid to what was it, 19 or 18, 19 for, for the Royals there. But, you know, showed flashes and then didn't get off to a great start last year. He goes down to AAA and throws what? How many innings was it? 11, 12 and, and something. Yeah, it was three. It was three starts, three starts out there. Something clicks for him. And after what was three innings, four earned runs in his first big league start of that season, and then only going two thirds of an inning, you know, 12 days later, and then two innings the, the next start after that. He goes to AAA, comes back up, and was just lights out. What, what really clicked for him? And what did you kind of see from his performance when he did stop by in Omaha? Well, I think the, the big thing for him, and this was reported at the time too, is that. You know, when he was in Omaha for those three weeks, there was a massive focus on not just developing his changeup, but trusting his changeup and using that pitch a little bit more than maybe he previously had. And look at the AAA level. Yeah, you want to win games. Winning is fun. But at the end of the day, like minor league baseball is about development and it's about getting better and preparing yourself for the major league level. And so there's a little bit more latitude, I guess, or or grace for failure at the minor league level because again it's about development and I don't know if this really is fair to say about Brady but I can certainly say this about me at least you know going back and forth between AAA and, and the majors last year you know there's definitely a feeling of comfort at the AAA level versus the major league level or, or less of a pressure to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of have to shed that pressure as you get more comfortable because that's how we find our true sound. And that's how we become as natural as we can possibly be. But those first couple major league games for me, yeah, there were, de- there was definitely some tense moments and times that I didn't completely sound like a hundred percent Jake Eisenberg. Whereas in Omaha, it was a hundred percent Jake Eisenberg all the time because I was fully comfortable. And I think that when it comes to Brady or really any of the other pitchers or hitters that, you know, came down to the AAA level to work on one thing or another, there's a level of comfort. And I think sometimes it's subconscious mentally where you have a little bit more room to try something and fail miserably. And then you're going to go back out there and get to try it again. There's, there's less stakes at play. And so I think uh, with Brady, I mean, it was, yeah, the, the imperative was, Hey, you know, throw your change up, uh, work on this change up. And I think he gained a good amount of confidence with it. Those three weeks in Omaha and was able to take that back to the major league level. And you can look at the numbers and see, you know, the percentage of changeups he threw throughout the season, but even just the threat of that, that pitch, you know, paired with his other two offerings. Um, I mean, he became a, dominant pitcher over the second half of the season and down the stretch and now you know projects to be one of if not the Royals best pitcher in 2023 so I think that that had a massive impact on on his you know trajectory last year um, but yeah it was mostly it was mostly the change of it looked like it mostly comes down to, to trusting it in an environment where it's easier to trust some things that you're not as confident in 100% you know more like numerically speaking Obviously, when you see the results that Brady Singer was getting after that stint in Omaha, you're going to gain confidence, right? And you, you, the game's going to slow down for you a little bit. We've seen a lot of arms that had a lot of prospect pedigree in the Royal system almost, you know, falter big time, like numerically. And, and that probably screws up 
their mentals a little bit, right? It may dock their confidence when you look at what Asa Lacey was doing in his first cameo and Jackson Goar, who I know you saw, um, and Chris Bubich and Daniel Lynch struggles at times. Um, who are some guys that you feel like are, are gaining confidence that are maybe going under the radar? Obviously, the baseball fan knows Lynch, Bubich, Coar because of the first round pedigree and he's had a couple of auditions. But are there some guys that you saw in Omaha last year that you feel like are, are gaining confidence steadily that could be joining the Royals some point soon? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Jackson Coar because he's one of the most dominant pitchers I've ever seen at the AAA level. I mean, there was a stretch in the beginning of the 2021 season where he was literally unhittable. He had an ERA of 1.01. Through his first five starts, he was the AAA East Pitcher of the Month, went on to be the AAA East Pitcher of the Year. In between that, there were some shaky outings at the major league level. And then last year, it wasn't quite the same as it was in 2021. And I think when you look at the Royals pitchers, especially those young guys that all came up kind of at the same time in 2018, and yeah, in a lot of ways, got disrupted by the the non-season in 2020 and it's still unclear you know how that impacted some guys whether they wound up at the big league level sooner than maybe that they were projected to be or wound up falling behind their developmental plan like it, it, we just don't know we just don't know i will say this though uh you know, bringing in Matt Cotrero as the new manager, who's got experience in the Rays organization and the Guardians organization, two organizations that are very well known for their pitching development. You bring in Brian Sweeney, the new pitching coach, who comes over from the Guardians, their bullpen coach, a very successful bullpen. And again, an organization that has been known for its pitching development. And you listen to the two of them talk about the level of communication that they hope to have and inspire with their players, the types of strategies that they want to implement, the types of pitching philosophies that they're bringing with them and also that they believe in and how they could have an impact on all of these young pitchers collectively. I think there's a tremendous amount of excitement about what could be with all of these guys, all, all of them, all of them, even, you know, a guy like Brady Singer, who, you know, appeared to figure it out last year. And I think did uh, what could he what next step could he take even to uh, what next step could Daniel Lynch take or Chris Bubich or Jonathan Heasley or Angel Serpa or Carlos Hernandez or Jackson Coar or, or all of these guys, uh, even the guys that have been major league veterans like Brad Keller, uh, who's been with the Royals for for a number of years now. And I think the excitement lies in the unknown that sometimes change no matter what kind of change can be a really positive catalyst uh you know we see guys all the time have a change of scenery and all of a sudden become an all-star and sometimes sometimes that's what it takes there's no rhyme or reason behind it but sometimes that's what flip this flips the switch and so this situation with the royals this year and having this new you know pitching development apparatus uh with zach bovey from the minnesota twins too as the assistant pitching coach and mitch setter now as the bullpen coach uh justin freeman who's been on as a, as a pitching strategist over the last couple of years i think this collectively creates a lot of excitement about the next level for a lot of these guys now you asked me about some of the names that you know might not pop up on the radar i mean the, the guys that we saw make some strides in Omaha last year, Austin Cox had a really, really good month of September. I mean, figured some things out in September, was fully healthy the entire season, but September was a really solid month for him. Um, not necessarily a guy that's going to overpower you, but like really figured out the, the types of deliveries that he had, the pitches that he wanted, where he was going to throw them, um, figured some things out there. I think if you're looking in the bullpen, uh, I think Andres Nunez was incredibly impressive last year. Sinker slider combo, like bowling ball sinker. Uh, at one point had a scoreless streak of like 27 innings or something like that. 
uh, out of the out of the bullpen. So he's a guy who's a non-roster invite that could certainly challenge for a role in the bullpen as we move forward into spring training. I think there's a lot of arms that have flown under the radar because you have that top of the line list of Singer, Lynch, Coar, Bubich, Heasley, the guys that have have reached the major league level. But there's a Jonathan Bolin who's coming off Tommy John surgery, yep. who's I still like very him. highly regarded. There's Angel Serpa, who kind of sort of came out of nowhere and has been fearless uh, in throwing strikes and really backing guys up. There's Carlos Hernandez who can throw, you know, in the, in the high nineties who wasn't necessarily as highly regarded, but then burst on the scene, jumping from high A to the big leagues in, in 2020. So uh, there are all these kinds of kinds of players that can make these significant jumps. And I'm just excited to see how everyone hits the ground running in spring training and how everything coalesces uh, with this new pitching development core. Yeah. I, I love that you mentioned all of those names because those those are a lot of guys that showed really exciting flashes. Somebody that I would have liked to see a little bit more of too is is Alec Marsh, who you know definitely struggled in Double A and then had ten innings in Triple and, and looks much better there. But in terms of stuff, uh, that's a guy that I, I'm I'm excited to see a bit more of. You made one point about change of scenery. And there's somebody that you kind of got to see have that change of scenery success last year, which is Drew Waters, who goes from what I think was a six something OPS in AAA with the Braves, then goes over to AAA after that trade for the competitive balance pick and, and a few other pieces. Uh, but I think, you know, the competitive balance pick and Drew, and Drew Waters were the two focal points of that deal. But he goes over to AAA in Omaha and, and I believe puts up like an OPS over around 935. So, I mean, it's the same level. Sure, it's a little bit of a different environment, but it, to, to see that 300 OPS bump uh, in the change of scenery at the same level. What did you see from Drew Waters when he got there? Was there something that, of just a different attitude, maybe a little bit more laid back, being that he's not pressing and, you know, Atlanta trying to to prove that he deserves a spot on a World Series team? Uh, did you see something, you know, that, that kind of seemed freeing from Drew Waters or did it just seem like something clicked for him offensively there? I saw a tenacious thirst for learning. And this is something that Drew talked about, too. I mean, he immediately from day one in the Royals organization started communicating with the hitting development staff, you know, now led by Drew Saylor. And Drew has given Drew Waters has given Drew Saylor a ton of credit over the last, you know, I guess, what, eight months now since he's been a part of the organization for helping him really unlock some things that he'd been trying to figure out. And what was most impressive about that was his immediate openness to what Drew Saylor and the rest of the hitting development staff had to say. You know, there can be some reticence sometimes for players that come into a new organization, think that, you know, hey, this is my swing. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. Don't necessarily want to change everything. And I don't think Drew Waters did change everything, but he was very open in listening to Drew Saylor and the hitting development staff uh, and the hitting coaches in Omaha about the things that he could improve or some things that might make his swing a little bit more fluid or, or attack the ball a certain way here and there. And he talked about that a lot and was able to just really hit the ground running. And I think felt a little bit more free by the fact like, hey, this is an organization that that wants me. They see something in me. They want me. And I'm not saying that the Braves didn't because, look, Drew's a Georgia boy drafted by his hometown organization. I'm sure that comes with some pressures, too, that may have been lifted by not being with the Braves anymore. But I don't want to put any words or thoughts in Drew's mind that weren't there. I don't think that's fair. But I will say that, you know, one of the most impressive things that Drew did. So he, he gets to Omaha, lights the world on fire and then endures a miserable slump for like a week just could not get a hit. It was like one for 23 or something for an entire week that we were in Toledo. There's an off day between the series against the Mudhens and the next series against uh, the Louisville Bats in Louisville. 
And Drew spent that off day in Louisville in the cages with Drew Saylor, who was in town with the team, and Brian Buchanan, the Storm Chasers hitting coach at the time, uh, and Ryan Powers, the assistant and coach, just going over things, trying to figure it out. And lo and behold, first A-B uh, of that series against Louisville, fouls off a bunch of pitches, pulls one foul that would have been a homer. Next pitch, boom, homer right center field. Maybe the biggest homer he'd hit uh, since he joined the Royals organization. It was just an immediate turnaround from that slump that he had the week before because he took the information that he got from the cage session the previous day and was able to implement it immediately. And we talked about it later that week and he really broke it down like frame by frame almost that the types of things that were happening with his swing that he wanted to change. And uh, it was frankly astounding for him to be able to take it and implement it in such a quick way. And he had an incredible series against the Louisville bats that week. Lo and behold, we get back from Louisville very next day. He's called up making his major league debut. Uh, So I think that's one of the most impressive things about Drew when he came over was his uh, initial openness to all the things that the Royals had to offer and then his ability to implement those things and run with it uh, to give himself some confidence and get a shot in the big leagues. Best part of this job and being with the team is that you get to know these guys. So instead of WRC plus and instead of ground ball rate, you know, obviously we're going to use these things, but you get to know makeup too. And you get to see body language every day because obviously body language over the course of nine innings from seven to 10 PM is going to be a little different than body language at 2 PM. What was Drew's body language? Like what, what were your interactions with him? Like when he first got there? So interestingly enough, when he first got there, I was not there. Uh, I was, I was doing, I was filling in on some Mets games and the team was in Rochester. Uh, So I was not with them when Drew arrived and then it was the all-star break. So I didn't actually meet Drew until they came back to Omaha post all-star break. Um, But it seemed like he'd fit right in immediately. Uh, And it helped that, like, yeah, these guys have kind of known each other a little bit throughout their minor league careers. I mean, Drew was in Rome when a lot of these guys were playing in Lexington uh, back in the Sally League in 2018, 2017. Uh, So a lot of them have played against each other or are familiar with them. I mean, uh, the manager, Scott Thorman, remembered playing against Drew Waters. Thor was the manager in Lexington when he played against Drew and remembers like, yeah, this guy was really, really good back then. Uh, So they have some familiarity with each other, but it seemed like he blended right in immediately and just kind of got to work in the cages and got to work in in the clubhouse and uh, carried himself with a, a good amount of energy. And yeah, maybe maybe a little chip from getting traded because how could you not, uh, especially from, yeah, your hometown organization, like maybe there's a little chip there, but not a chip in a negative way, kind of, you know, one of those motivational chips. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's the makeup I witnessed. And I would say that that's kind of the makeup that you see from a lot of the guys in the Royals organization. I mean, bar none across the board. And I would not necessarily say this about every organization I've been with, because this is going to sound like I'm blowing smoke or PR speak or something, but like, (laughs) we know who signs your paychecks. Genuinely, (laughs) genuinely, you know, every dude that came up through the Royals organization, I I can't say that any of them are like, Oh yeah, that guy's a jerk. Like I can't think, I can't think of one. I can't think of one guy that, didn't give me or somebody else the time of day or blew something off or just was like, Hey, you know what? I, I don't want to deal with this or that. Uh, I'm just going to go play baseball. Like there's nobody that's like that. Uh, there are some certainly that go above and beyond mm-hmm. that. Like, you know, a, a guy like 
Brewer Hicklin comes to mind, like A plus dude will go out of his way to do anything for anyone. Uh, Nick Prado comes to mind, someone who's incredibly thoughtful uh, when it comes to answering questions or very considerate uh, of other people's time and, and you know, understanding the, the different machinations of, of minor league baseball. Um, right. You know, there are certainly dudes that stand out, but like the baseline is just like really good dude. That's incredibly considerate, fun to be around. And yeah, I guess, you know, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, but like just being a good person uh, right. to the best of your it helps. Like, isn't it funny how that's true in pretty much every environment that you're in? Uh, so it, it makes it really easy to get to know these guys for one, because they, they don't shut themselves off necessarily when they see me walking up to say hello. Um, but it also makes it really easy to root for these guys. Like, I think you look across baseball and yeah, there are teams that have an incredible amount of talent. And there are players that are really, really fun to watch. And I don't know anything about them personally. Uh, I do know some things personally about the guys that are going to be playing for the Royals. And I can tell you that this may be one of the easiest teams to root for in baseball, not just because of the youth, but because of the youth and and goodness of all of these people, uh, not just players. And I think it makes it just a really exciting 2023 that's to come. So, you know, it kind of brings to mind Bobby Witt Jr., right? Because you have somebody that, you know, if there's a candidate, to be maybe not the, the kindest or not give everybody the time of day. It's going to be the the son of a big leaguer taken second overall out of high school uh, that is considered to be the, the future of his franchise and the top prospect in baseball and whatever. By all accounts, Bobby Witt Jr., and you'll, I'm sure you'll fill in on this, is, is a phenomenal guy and a, and a pro's pro. I want to start on the baseball side, and then I know you're going to fill in on, on the character side as well. But just what was it like to, you know, I, I can imagine, I always text Jack when, when you know, Andy Rodriguez, who's not nearly on the prospect hype caliber but you know some of these exciting prospects were getting up to triple a and i'm like man i'm so pumped for you like that's got to be a nice little injection of life during the marathon of the season bobby wood jr gets there in 2021 right around the dog days right i mean it's, it's the middle of the season maybe 61 62 games in and, and i can't imagine how fun that must have been when he first gets there but you know what was your impression of him of course on the field he's a guy that had a 933 ops and essentially went 30 30 it was 33 home runs 29 stolen bases and it really was 34 home runs but they took that one away from him which i want and, and I it really to... and it really was 30 stolen bases we'll get to that in a second Ooh, okay. okay so he he was really double snubbed there mm-hmm. i want i want a little mm-hmm. bit of the story on that but first what was it like to kind of see this kid show up and and make baseball look so easy despite being several several years younger than the competition and then two you know what was your impressions of the way he carried himself on the field because that was a big thing that scouts talked about from day one is uh you're not going to regret taking this kid out of high school because he's going to carry himself like a kid that played four years of college baseball maybe more so bobby and Nick Prado got called up from double A on the same day. And they both showed up to Warner park on a Monday off day. Uh, and I remember going to the ballpark that day to, you know, help them come in. We had like a zoom press conference sort of thing with them. Uh, and then they walked onto the field for the first time we, we walked down. Uh, there's a little ramp in, in left field. We walked down the ramp onto the field. And uh, I remember taking a picture of them on the field together for the first time, you know, like, Hey, you're in Omaha. Welcome. And they were just like looking around soaking in all of it the same way we all step out onto a field or into a ballpark for the first time and like our metaphorical jaws drop and we just soak in the environment Uh, i remember you know one of the kind of more amazing moments uh from my big league experience last year was the first time i walked up the steps and saw wrigley uh and that was like that was like whoa but if you if you remember like think about the last time you were in a ballpark for the first time 
and you had that moment where you just soaked it all in and like took a really deep breath and you smelled those baseball smells and heard those baseball sounds. And that's exactly what it was like for the two of them. The first time they stepped on the field at Warner Park. And keep in mind, this is AAA. This is not their end goal. This is not where they ultimately want to be. This is the next step on their journey. I mean, these guys had played in the Futures game like two weeks prior. Uh, So like they've been on massive stages in their career before. But here they are at Warner Park, you know, this 6,000 seat, 9,000 capacity ballpark in Papillion, Nebraska. And they're soaking it in like it's Kauffman Stadium or Wrigley or Fenway or Dodger Stadium or or wherever. Um, And I think that can tell you a lot about the kind of guys that these two people are. Um, I mean, I've already told you, Nick is one of the most thoughtful players I've come across in the way that he answers questions and goes about what he does. Bobby is one of the happiest people I've been around. I remember talking to everybody before that season started, and we had an idea that that Bobby might make his way to AAA that year. And so it's trying to get a sense of like, okay, what can we expect? And I remember something that Alex Zumwalt, who's now the hitting coach for the Royals, at the time he was leading the, the hitting development side at the minor league level, Um, We had him on one of our podcasts and I asked him about Bobby and I remember him telling me that Bobby was the kind of player that he hoped his kids would be. And to me, that's like the ultimate sort of praise. And I asked him why. And he said, Bobby comes to the ballpark every day with a smile on his face and he plays this game with an endless amount of joy that is not necessarily present for every single player and certainly not ones that are of that caliber or have that much hype or that much pressure, even uh, especially at that age, like it can be easy to shut down or to just play and then go home and kind of like collapse in an exhaustion of, of, you know, keeping up with, with the pressures of being Bobby Wood jr. But it never appears as though he's carrying it that way because he plays with such an amount of boundless endless joy. And then, yeah, he goes out and does these superhuman, insane things that make your jaw literally drop. I remember his second triple A game in the span of, I think it was the first within the first three innings, but it was a span of like 45 minutes. He hits a grounder to the right side and legs it out for an infield single. Like the kind of ball that had like has no business being a hit. Like this is routine grounder to second base, but because he's ridiculously fast, it's an infield hit. Next inning, he's playing defense at shortstop, ranges of the middle, makes this diving play in the shallow left center grass that like your eyes bulge out of your skull because he, he dives to his left, gets the ball, stands up, fires a dart out. Like no business being an out, but it's an out. So we've got infield single. We've got diving play at shortstop. Next time he comes up to the bat, ho-hum, dude hits an inside the park homer at Warner Park for his first AAA home run. <laughs> Smashes one off the, the wall in left center field. Uh, and yeah, of course, like every inside the park home run, like you get a couple of bounces here and there. But like this is true inside the park home run, like not like Little League homer type BS. Um, you know, the center fielder, you know, went after it and missed it and the ball kind of bounced away. That gave Bobby an opening. But like, I remember sitting there in the booth and watching the ball come off the, the padding in center field and then like picking up where Bobby was. And the dude was already like three steps away from third base. Yeah. I mean, it was insane. It was insane. I remember going back and watching the clip and I was like, look, I think sometimes I can speak pretty quickly or I can speak pretty fast when I need to be. I could not keep up with how fast Bobby was running. I was saying on the air that he was rounding third when he was halfway to home plate. 
Yeah, yeah it, it because makes you like an auctioneer. Fast. You're like yeah, an auctioneer was, at that point. Because he was that fast. And so, I mean, it was things like that with him night after night after night. And frankly, it was things like that with Nick Prado night after night after night. He went on a tear. I think he hit homers in four straight games twice. Uh, MJ Melendez came up uh, a few weeks later, and then the three of them were together, just like setting the world on fire in the most fun way. Uh, it was the first time that the three of them, the, fir- the three of them played together uh, at the double A level, and it was insane. And then the three of them came up to the AAA level and played together, and it was insane. Um, but at the AAA level in 2021, it was the three of them. Uh, Kyle Isbell was there, though the four of them are, are pretty close. It was the first time the four of them had ever played together at a professional level. Uh, Edward Olivares was a big part of that 2021 Storm Chasers team. And now, I mean, those five guys are all a big part of the 2023 Royals positional core. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Bobby Wood Jr. experience in 2021 was something I'll, I'll never forget. And now I'll tell you why Bobby Wood Jr. had 30 stolen bases in 2021. So we've got 29, and it's the last week of the season. This is the AAA final stretch uh, that they deemed some of those postseason games. And we're in Des Moines. And Bobby gets on first, and he steals second. And this is it. He steals second. That is his 30th stolen base. It happens. He's just gone 30-30-30 for like the third time this millennium. Uh, it's yes. like him, Luis Robert, and Grant Desme, who did it in the Oakland A's organization in 2009. That's a wild story. Look that one up. Yeah. Uh, but it's like the first time in forever. It's like this is an insane moment. And then this is like the second or third inning. And then it starts pouring <sighs> and pouring yeah. and pouring. And the game gets delayed. And then the game gets suspended. And so we're sitting there like, okay, Bobby did it, but like, it's not official yet. And because it's the last week of the season and there's only like three games left, that's it. Game gets canceled. They're not going to make it up. And so all the numbers from that game, poof, they disappear into the, into the ether. They don't exist anymore. And so Bobby, who wound up the next couple of days going to Kansas city to accept his George Brett hitter of the year award, uh, that he earned within the organization, missed a couple of games, came back for the season finale, and wound up uh, unfortunately not getting on base and not having a chance to pick up an official 30th steal. But look, I was there. I can I can share yeah. I can share. Yeah, the I, video he was a 30-30 guy. Yeah. Share the video clip with you. Uh, like I had the, the press release was written. Uh, the graphics were made. Like it's out on social media that it happened. Uh, but. It didn't officially happen. And uh, look, I think it makes it kind of a better story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it makes it a story instead of like, yeah, he went 30, 30, 30. But yeah, uh, Bobby Wood Jr. did have 30 steals in 2021. Uh, that 30th one just wasn't official. What about the the ump show on uh, the takeaway the thirty fourth yeah. home run? Well, there? that was double. That was double A. So I that was a double. That was a double A. Okay, I didn't remember. For whatever reason, I thought it was towards the end of the year. So that that was one that I, I legitimately spent way too much time like sitting in my in my room just like br- looking at the video like scrubbing back. <laughs> Were you like, going like his- frame by frame? Did he yeah. really not touch home plate? But then I realized I'm like, it doesn't even matter if it's like kind of close. <laughs> just just let it ride. Like who cares? But yeah. um, that that was one that yeah. So he lost us a home run and a stolen base mm-hmm. in that season. So it was really thirty four thirty, and we'll, we'll we'll always know that. But that that is crazy. I've always thought it was kind of weird how they just wiped the stats away. But you can't really have stats count towards a game that doesn't count. So exactly, it, it's, it's kind it's of a one of those weird things. And uh, so yeah, Bobby Bobby went thirty thirty in in twenty twenty one with an unofficial stolen base. 
Uh, it happened. We witnessed it. It's like if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? Uh, if Bobby steals a base, but it rains, did he really steal a base? <laughs> I say yes, uh, but we can digress. I'll say yes as well. Um, your first year, 2021, that was like, it was probably the best year to be affiliated with the Omaha Storm Chasers ever. Because when you look at the minor league home run race, it was three of the top four. It was four of the top six. Ryan McBroom and Lester were tied at fifth. But MJ Melendez ended up taking it from one of Arm's best friends, Griffin Conine. So MJ had 41 bombs. This was a guy, and Arm and I have talked about it. You know, we just we just spent some time on on Bobby Witt and Nick Prado, who were always that blue chip prospect. MJ Melendez, obviously he was drafted to be that, but he had a brutal 2019 season. Then you have the COVID layoff. This guy coming out hitting 41 homers, and obviously we we saw him in the first couple of weeks of the AAA season in 2022. Then he gets up uh, for good in 22, and he looks like he's going to be a, a real factor for the Kansas City Royals moving forward. But getting to know MJ, watching that power display as as brilliant as it was, what did you learn about MJ Melendez, the power bat, during that season and then the front part of 2022? I learned that it can look like he didn't get all of it and it can look like he didn't hit a home run. And it just, it just goes because he's got this, he's got this swing where like, yeah, if he pulls it, like, you know, okay, this one, this one's going, but he's also got this swing where he does get like, it almost, it looks like he's out in front. And then all of a sudden it's an opposite field home run because he's like leaning forward a little bit or his hands are just a little bit behind his body. And I don't know if that's like even the technical way to describe what's happening, but it doesn't like it looks like he's about to hit a pop up to third base. And then all of a sudden it's like a 420 foot home run over the left field fence. So I learned pretty quickly that like off the bat, take take an extra second to see like what's yeah. really happening uh, before it just because it, like he's got a very he's got a pretty looking swing. But some of those swings that send that ball the opposite way, like it. OK, this is going to be a weird comp. So, so bear with me, but like, if you were looking at just like a, a video of his swing from the side and you didn't see like where the ball went or anything like that, some of those swings almost look like what Ichiro used to do yeah, where yeah. he would like leak out of the box a little mm -hmm. bit and kind of like, po like it does kind of look like that sometimes, except MJ's hitting an opposite field homer 450 feet. Uh, so you learn that pretty quickly. I mean, the dude's got swag, dude's got style, like like talk about flashing the leather. Like he's literally flashing the leather. Like he designs like a custom glove every year. Uh, I think 2021, it was like teal on the inside. Like they, they, it looked really, really fresh. And I'm excited to see what he, what he's whipped up for, for 2023. Um, but he carries himself with that kind of swagger and confidence too. Like, you know, he, that's what he brings to the plate with him. Um, and I mean, it was just fun. It was just fun to watch. And it was fun to keep an eye on what Griffin Conan was doing too, especially knowing that they were like pretty close and good friends and yeah. their dads were coaching together at FIU at the time. So uh, that was a really fun home run race to chronicle and, and be a part of. And it was just like rocket after rocket. And uh, yeah, MJ did get the benefit of having, you know, two extra weeks of games than Griffin did. Now, MJ had surpassed Griffin before that point anyway, so it wouldn't necessarily have mattered. Um, but yeah, without those two weeks, MJ doesn't get to 41. Um, but look, like it was still a hundred. It was a 129 game season. It was the shortest minor league baseball season in a very, very, very long time in the ever. So he yeah. hit 41 home runs in 
Well, actually, I don't remember the exact number of games that MJ himself played that year between double A and triple A, but the Storm Chasers as a team played 129 games. So, and that was only maybe a few more than what he would have played if it was an entire double A season. Point is, he hit home runs at a ridiculous rate mm-hmm. and he did it as a catcher. Like, yeah. I mean, he was, I think, the first catcher since 1995 to hit more than 40 home runs in a full minor league season. 1995. Yeah. And in a shortened season. And keep in mind, this is also, and like you mentioned, this is his first full season after what was a dismal 2019. And it's, and it's worth, you know, talking about Nick Prado there too, because they both really, really struggled at Wilmington in 2019. And look, I've been to that ballpark, Frawley stadium, it's not really a hitter's park, not a fun place for, for hitters, kind of a graveyard. Um, you've got I-95 in the background and the lights make it all challenging a little bit and the wind is crazy. Uh, not the best hitter's park. Uh, that being said, like it was still really bad for them. And I think the two of them, maybe more than anyone else in the organization, benefited from that alternate site setup in 2020 to be able to really break everything down, build it back up again without worrying about official results or statistics or anything because the two of them just hit the ground running in 2021 and we're both among the top five in minor league baseball in home runs. MJ had 41. Nick had what? 32. Uh, I think it was uh, ultimately. So uh, yeah, I mean, they were like, you know, minor league bash brothers, Bobby had 33. Uh, You know, it was just, it was, it was really a fun. I mean, the the storm chasers that year tied the franchise record for home runs in a single season. They tied the franchise record for home runs in a single season in 129 games. Yeah a record that had previously been set in 1999 in a 144-game season. Yeah. 231 home runs in 129 games. I mean, at, a, at, at certain points throughout the season, this was a team that was averaging two homers a game <laughs> and wound up averaging a little over a homer and a half a game or something like that. It was just, it was nuts. It was yeah. nuts. And it wasn't like these are all bandbox home runs. I mean, yeah, Warner Park's a hitter's park. CHS Field in St. Paul is a hitter's park. But look, you go to Victory Field, that's not a hitter's park. Nope. Lido, that's not a hitter's park. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to watch and be a part of. As far as MJ goes, I mean, he just he he had that spark. I mean, there was there was one game I remember in Des Moines where MJ was a double shy of hitting for the cycle, and he came up to the plate. It's last AB, and he hits this missile to dead center. I mean, like line drive missile. And the fence in Des Moines is is a taller fence. Um, I forget exactly how high it is, but it's like 16, 17 feet. Like you can't jump and scale it sort of thing. Right. And like, look, if this, if this ball hits the top of the wall, like MJ's got a double and it's a cycle. Well, sure enough, ball flies right over the top of the fence. It's his second homer of the game. He finishes a double shy of the cycle. Uh, and that's, I guess, encapsulating of what it was like to watch MJ Melendez in 2021. It was like, yeah, he could hit for the cycle or he could just hit two home runs in a game. Like, uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm excited to see him, you know, really take that next step this year, too. So going to back to the swing and, and the way that he would inside out some home runs, there were some during that season when I would watch him where I would just laugh because it was like, <laughs> how did how did that yeah. ball get out? Like, the, I can specifically remember sending clips to Jack and being like, Ha ha. Look at how this, how the hell did this thing get out? You know, like his first one, his first one at the triple A level was like that, where he inside out it right down the left field line. 
and, and it's it just didn't pure, look like it was going to go, and then boom, it goes. Just pure athleticism and torque. Because you talk about the way that even when he's out front, he still has enough behind it to, to drive it. And it, I, I can't imagine how how that acclimation process was for you the first couple calls because you're probably like, no way, this thing is getting out. And then, as you said, you, you had to kind of learn. Uh, the one thing I wanted to ask about with Prado, because he still had a, a good year overall in terms of production, but you know, Prado was a guy that we were kind of hoping to to you know be in tandem with the other group, and he did get up to the big leagues and flash some success. But you know, as as a guy that is going to always battle some more swing and miss, it, it, your margin for error is a little thinner. And did did you sense that maybe Prado? You know, as a guy that was always very transparent, as you said, you have maybe felt any sense of of pressure because you talk about AAA can sometimes be less pressure, but sometimes it can be more when you're trying to get back to the big leagues. You know, this is a guy that has a track record after that struggle in 2019 walks with the best of them. Great approach. And you talk about, you know, the mental and then, of course, defensively at first base, there's few better than him there. Um, you know, what did you see from Prado maybe when he was struggling at times and and you know what do you think he needs to do to get back in terms of what you've seen when because you've seen him on both ends of the spectrum I feel like you know where do you feel like he's at now trying to get back to contributing at the big league level and and joining that that group that he was a part of and had a lot of success with and played a big part of the AAA success with in Omaha to, to get back to the big leagues well to start uh he is the best defensive first baseman I've ever seen at the minor league level full yep. stop full stop he is the best defensive first baseman I've ever seen at the minor league level. I mean, he won the minor league gold glove in 2021 and people may not realize it, but it's probably harder to win a minor league gold glove than it is to win a major league gold glove. <laughs> the player pool is a lot bigger because the player pool is way, way bigger, way bigger. And guess what? We don't really have like a bunch of advanced metrics. Yeah, at DRS. Minor league level. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> no one's, no one's putting that together at the minor league level. So a lot of, look, a lot of it is eye test and feeling percentage and you can roll your eyes at all that stuff. Um, but like, Best defensive first baseman I've ever seen at the minor league level. Uh, offensively, incredible approach. I keep using the word thoughtful uh, with Nick Prado because I think that's one of the best words that describes not only the kind of person he is, but also the kind of hitter he is. He's an incredibly cerebral hitter, knows his zones, knows the pitches he's going to do damage on. And I think sometimes when it's not going as strongly for him, I think... I think there's a little bit more hesitation than there sometimes is. And you'll see like the strikeouts that he has aren't because he chased a changeup low and away and like chased a bad pitch. It's because he took a pitch that was really, really close that he sees as a ball and knowing his eye probably is a ball that got called as a strike. And so instead of being a walk, cause it was like a three, two pitch or something like that, it winds up as, as a strikeout. Um, but I think I remember talking to him about this or talking to somebody about this, that even though the strikeout numbers last year were a little bit up, like the percentage of quality at bats that he was having was in line with what happened in 2021. Okay. There were kind of just some some calls and balls and strikes that weren't going his way the same as they did the year before. Um, in truth, and this is this is my this is completely my opinion. Um, I think that early on. I think that the adjusting to the pitch clock had a little bit to do with it. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we forget sometimes that you look, it's called a pitch clock, but it's a clock for the hitters too. And they've got to be quote alert to the pitcher in the box last year at the triple A level with nine seconds left on that clock, which really only gave them like five seconds to be ready. It was really quick. Jack, you saw it in Indy. I yeah. mean, no runners on base. It's really quick 
for that batter to be ready in the box pitch after pitch after pitch. And when you're used to going through so many different variables about what pitch is going to be thrown and where it's going to be thrown and what you're going to do with it, and you all of a sudden don't have the time to do that that you used to, adjusting to that can can be hard. And I think it wasn't. I think we saw that with a lot of players, frankly, at, uh, on the hitting side. And I do, I do happen to think that the the pitch clock is going to affect hitters more than it will pitchers at the major league level. I think we'll see that in spring training. Um, but I think early on last season, I think that I think that that's something that may have contributed. And just trying to figure out what the new routine was with the time parameters and constraints that existed. Um, because again, he's an incredibly thoughtful hitter. And when you're an incredibly thoughtful hitter, you need time to think because uh, thinking is hard. Um, but when he makes those decisions and those decisions are so often right, he's, he does damage. He does damage. He hits the ball hard. He does damage. He draws his walks with the best of him. Like you said, it's an incredibly patient approach. And like he's a really fun hitter to watch because of the way he approaches. I mean, th- that's it. That, that's the best I can say. It's just very thoughtful. You know, my prevailing thought on, on the clock, and then I'll get to my last question for you, but my prevailing thought on the clock going into this year is good pitchers and strike throwers will get even better because they can almost go into attack mode. And and you can have a hitter on their heels for the entirety of an at-bat because an at-bat can be over in 40 to 50 seconds. Like, Jake, you saw the stark difference between a rehabbing pitcher and... And a triple-A pitcher with the clock, you oh, don't yeah. realize how slow a major league rehabbing pitcher is until you see the clock. I mean, those innings. Well, look, I, I look, I called triple-A games and major league games last year. I yeah. saw I saw the difference in real time. I would go from a Storm Chasers game to a Mets game, uh, a game with a pitch clock and a game without a pitch clock. And it was night and day. Yeah. And I, I mean, it was night and day in terms of the pace of play, sure. But it was also like just from a broadcast technical standpoint, it became a very different broadcast because when you have that pitch clock and there's a rhythm that starts and like on the radio, you're beholden to the pitch. Like you're saying, here's the pitch or now the two one every single pitch that comes home. That is what is dictating the things that you can say between the pitches. And when you have less time between the pitches, you're kind of just like throwing darts in and out and you're you're shorting up the different. Uh, stats you're giving or stories you're telling into uh, smaller snippets so that you can kind of go in and out. Whereas at the major league level, without that clock, I mean, you could spin a yarn for a minute and a half between pitches, depending on what's going on. Like, you know, a guy shakes off or maybe the pitch comms not working or, or something like that. So that was a weird adjustment of just like understanding the completely different rhythms of the two games last year, AAA and, and the major leagues. And just one quick point on that. I think like, look, these rules are going to be implemented in spring training. These players are the best players in the world. They're going to adjust fairly quickly, uh, especially the really, really good ones. Uh, now, the ones that are participating in the World Baseball Classic won't have that same opportunity. And I think looking at that group of players and how they adjust come the start of the regular season is going to be interesting. But I do think, or at least I tend to think, that the Royals have maybe a slight advantage in the sense that so They're many so of their young. players... Yeah. Played with this pitch clock last year. Pretty much every single one of them, with the exception of a handful that were in the big leagues all of last year. Right. Um, but even the pitchers, I mean, when Brady Singer came down for those three weeks, he was option. So he was subject to the pitch clock rules. Same with Chris Bubich. Jonathan Heasley's thrown with the pitch clock. So Brad Keller, you know, he pitches pretty quick to begin with anyway. Um, but all of these guys, I mean, they've experienced it. 
So I think that in some ways, they're not going to have to adjust the same way, you know, 10 to 12 major league, 10 to 12 year major league veterans uh, are going to have to adjust. Um, but, but yeah, sorry, I'm rambling now. No, you're good. Uh, I, I do want to end with Vinny. That's my last one because this guy, Aram calls it the Ty France effect where your prospect value is almost diminished because all you do is hit and you don't have any like eye popping tools or anything like that. You just happen to be a really freaking good baseball player. And, and that's what Vinny Pasquantino did at every single stop. Getting to know Vinny, the guy obviously was a treat. I'm sure everybody's seen <laughs> the, the interviews and the snippets. Uh, he is a gem and I'm sure you're excited to interact with him for the next, however many years in the Royals clubhouse and beyond, but watching Vinny, the hitter, was there development there over the course of his triple-A tenure, or was he always just really, really good, and he was waiting for a shot, and he got it? Both? Yeah. I mean, he was really, really good from the get-go, but I don't think it's fair to say that he stayed the same because he definitely got better. I mean, look, the the first month was April. Uh, second month was May. Third month was June, and he was the International League Player of the Month. And it was insane. I mean, look, I've, I've said this before. To be the International League Player of the Month is arguably one of the hardest things to do because it's a 20-team league at the (laughs) highest level of minor league baseball. It is the largest league at the highest level of minor league baseball, and you got to be the one guy who stands out among 20 different AAA teams. And so that's what he did in June, and then he gets called up shortly thereafter. Uh, And so, yeah, he was incredible from the get-go and an incredible personality from the get-go and in line with all the things that that we'd heard about him. An amazing clubhouse presence, great with the fans, great with media, great in pregame interview settings, what, what have you. He's just such a gregarious personality in the best ways and so comfortable in his own skin uh, in the best ways and wears all of it on his sleeve in the best ways. And, I mean, I remember when we were first kind of, like he was first starting to turn heads, like, oh, this guy's got the same number of strikeouts, walks, and extra base hits in 2021. Like, what? That's not a real thing that's supposed to happen in baseball for a guy with his profile. Uh, and then, like, he comes out and more or less does it again uh, or does something very similar where the strikeout-to-walk ratio is bonkers and he's got extra base hits left and right. I mean, I was looking at some of, like, the peripheral numbers from what he did at the major league level last year and and some of the underlying metrics and stat cast stuff, and I was like these are kind of similar to Freddie Freeman. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you, you kind of pause for a second because it's like, okay, Freddie Freeman's like one of the best, if not the best offensive first baseman in, in the game right now, you know, him, Paul Goldschmidt, I mean, but like Freddie's, you know, lefty. So that's a sooner comp for Vinny. And it's like, yeah, that's not that ridiculous based on what he did last year. And I, I get a little bit gun shy with this because like, this is his first full major league season, you know, like to put that kind of an expectation on a player, I don't think is fair in any way, shape or form to say, Vinny, we need you to carry our entire team. I don't think is fair in any way, shape or form. I don't think Vinny would agree with that because he's the kind of guy who accepts those sorts of roles and challenges. Uh, but like the dude's got them, got some thump. Yeah, I was like, yeah. he, he might just he do it did. anyways, though. Like, he, <laughs> like, might he, he might just do he it. He might do it anyway, but I don't think it's fair to expect. Yeah. I don't think it's fair to expect that. But it, here's the, here's where it is. Here's where it comes down to. I don't think it's fair to expect that to happen. But I'm also not going to be surprised if it Correct. does. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that kind of encapsulates 
his potential and demeanor. And uh, I mean, I, I read a quote yesterday where uh, Annie Rogers, who covers the Royals for MLB.com, put together her first piece in spring training and was talking about Matt Quatrero being at minor at major league camp for the first time as a manager. And there's a quote in there of Vinny going up to Q and basically saying something along the lines of like, how does it feel to survey your kingdom for the first time? <laughs> and like, if you've been around Vinny at all, like, you know, exactly how he said those words. Like there's a, there's a little bit of sarcasm in there. There's a little bit of needling, but like in a, but there's also like a little bit of, of like genuine, like feeling in there. Like, at the same at the same time that he's you know hypothetically poking fun at Q for being like the king of this kingdom for the first time, he's also very much understanding like this is a big deal, mm-hmm. like this is his first time as a major league manager, and that must be really special for him. And so he simultaneously like breaks down those walls and makes everybody comfortable the instant you start talking to him, and then he goes and hits a tank like. <laughs> So yeah, he's an incredibly fun player and I'm I'm so excited to get the chance to be around him this season and the rest of these guys too. It's going to be it's going to be a blast. It's going to be a blast. That's all I got. You got That's Sweet, all I got. Man. Jake Eisenberg, the newest radio voice of the Kansas City Royals. Uh can't wait to listen. Yeah. And can't wait to watch this young group of exciting guys go to work with uh, you as the soundtrack to them. Thanks for having me guys. This was a blast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.